Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast. And this is your bonus episode with Professor David Kyle Johnson. And you can hear the first part of this interview in episode 146. And this one is released firstly to all my Patreon listeners. And thank you for your continued financial support. And thank you to everyone else also who are pressing play on a week-by-week basis or are sharing the content with their colleagues and friends. To find out how you can access these bonus episodes ahead of everyone else, just visit economicrockstar.com forward slash Patreon or go to the Patreon website, patreon.com forward slash economicrockstar. And in this bonus episode with Professor Johnson, we touch on a number of economic topics which happen to be in the movie Soylent Green. I haven't watched it yet and I will soon enough. And I think it would be a great idea to connect with Kyle once I've watched Soylent Green so we can have a more of a deeper discussion on what's going on in Soylent Green and how we can relate to philosophy and economics. Because he mentioned that within the movie, some economic themes that come up are overpopulation, food scarcity, inefficient agricultural and meat production, also euthanasia. And these are topics that were the concern of the day back in the 1970s and I suppose continue to be so today. A number of books we mention in this episode relate to these economic themes including The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich. And we also touch on our previous conversation in episode 146, where we discussed Nietzsche. And we also briefly examine Adolf Hitler's book Mein Kampf, which also touches on overpopulation, scarcity, and the problem with feeding its population, and his solutions and how to solve that problem, which, as we all know, had devastating consequences when put into practice. And our conversation turns full circle when we touch back on Nietzsche and how his idea of Ubermensch was not aligned or was not meant to be aligned to the establishment of the Aryan race. So enjoy this episode. And again, if you'd like to leave any feedback, if you haven't done so already, just check out the show notes page, leave a comment on the page, add to it, even leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. And as always, thank you very much for continuing to listen and enjoy. So to get a single cow that you slaughter and turn into a few slices of beef, right? You're literally feeding it, you know, tons and tons of grain over its lifetime, wasting tons and tons of water growing that grain that you eventually feed it, right? All to produce, you know, a few slabs of meat where if you had instead had spent all of that water and used all of that grain to you know, keep humans alive, you could have literally kept you know hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people alive for their entire life. Because I have another a number of episodes with other guests, one on Star Trek, another on Star Wars. I think there's one. Yeah, not that I think, but I know there's one on. What's the one? The Mockingjay. The oh, Hunger Games. Hunger Games. Yeah, Hunger Games. Yeah, yeah, sure. game. So I, I've a number of these, and personally, I wouldn't like to limit it to just that, and I'd like to expand more on it. Uh, there's another on Harry Potter. So mm-hmm. you do number those on the, the lectures on your course, but there's one mm-hmm. movie that I recorded on my Skybox, and I've yet to watch it, and it's Soylent Green. Aha. And I like the sound of it, and I can't wait to sit down and watch it, even though I have it on the Skybox for the last year and a half, and I need that moment just to sit back and enjoy it. But this is a, a movie that was 
made in the 70s, maybe even in 1970. Mm-hmm. And it has um, a lot of economic themes in it. And I think it's a oh, nice yeah. way to perhaps end this conversation we're having because it is a, philo- a sci-fi or science and philosophy or uh, science fiction and philosophy, but also the many economic themes that we find ourselves discussing in textbook or previous economists who've talked about uh, peak oil or peak population and the threat to humanity, which may not materialize. And But we still like to have uh, the drama that's played out in these science fiction movies or these dramas. Yes, good. So tell me, this is interesting because I, I didn't send you my, I have a lecture on Soylent Green. Okay. Um, and uh, I didn't send it to you because I didn't like initially think of that as an economic issue. So, because it, 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 I could say this without giving away anything. It deals with overpopulation, right? It's set in a world where overpopulation is rampant. T- tell me, so, so I know, because I don't want to spoil anything. If you've never seen Soylent Green, I don't want to spoil anything. Tell me what you know about Soylent Green. All I, when, all I know is when I turned it on, I didn't realize it was um, a 1970s movie. And okay. I had that. All, all, all I saw was, was a Charlie Heston. Mm-hmm. And I think he had a peak cap on him or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was all I recognized was an improvement in Technicolor or something. Okay. All right. And, and I that... turned it off. Uh, it was late at night and I think I saw it as a three hour movie perhaps. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty long. It is pretty long. And so you have, brace yourself for that when you watch it because it is made in the seventies. Movie making was a little bit different back then. So, you know, it's, there's a lot of exposition. It kind of moves slowly and, and that kind of stuff. Right. So you, you need to be ready for that. And I so, wasn't ready for that particular night when I went to press play. So right, right, right. I didn't um, watch one bit of it. Yeah. 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 So you need to give, like, you need to be in a position where you're like, okay, I've got time to do this. I'm not in a hurry. I can just sit down and kind of take this in. And so it will, but you you don't know about the ending or anything nothing. like that. Absolutely okay. nothing. Okay. So this is going to be, okay. I'm going to tread very lightly. I, I uh, don't mind you spoiling no, it on no, me, no, but no, no, we, no, no, we no, put no, the no, warning no. out there for everybody else. <laughs> no, 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 no. I do not want to spoil it for you because this is a rare thing. This is, it, it, it is akin to, like you've watched Star Wars, right? Yeah. Right? So the, you not knowing anything about Soylent Green is almost akin to you not knowing that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. Right. If you had not watched Star Wars yet and did not know that, I would not spoil it for you. So I am not going to spoil Soylent Green for you. However, we can definitely talk about overpopulation as an economic problem and uh, the kind of philosophical Uh, questions that it raises. So I can tell you a little bit about my lecture. Essentially, the kind of question that I get at by by using Soylent Green is euthanasia and uh, like ethical. And this is why I didn't think of it as an economic issue, because it's this I, I raise this kind of moral issue about overpopulation and whether euthanasia would be an appropriate solution essentially for that for that problem and essentially the answer is no i mean long long story short euthanasia would not be an effective method for dealing with overpopulation birth control is what is actually a much more effective method of of of, of population control however like what, what leads into this and this actually the, the overpopulation uh, lecture comes out of a lecture on global warming uh, which the the economics lecture I, I sent you on uh, capitalism leads into uh, a lecture on global warming. Um, this could be also construed as, a, as an economic issue, right? 
but the the issue is kind of whether or not there's anything to really worry about is overpopulation uh anything that we really need to worry about because right like the population bomb was back in the 70s and in fact that that book actually partly inspired Soylent Green to be a movie about overpopulation right but the the, the worries that, that that book you know brought to the forefront did not come to fruition we did not run out of food a lot of people thought we were going to run out of food because of overpopulation we did not right and so people are apt to say well all these were people you know these economists and environmentalists are you know always worried about these things and they they're just doomsayers these worries that don't come to fruition but on the other hand you could you could argue however that the population bomb was right it was just its timeline was off and that the reason its timeline was off was because it did not anticipate the development of you know uh, semi dwarf wheat and other genetically modified crops and, and organisms and that kind of stuff that allowed for us to, you know, exponentially increase the amount of food that an acre of land can supply, right? And so the population bomb was right. We are eventually, the earth is eventually going to have too many people on it, and we are going to outstrip our ability to feed the number of people that there are. It was just wrong about when that was because it didn't foresee the development of genetically modified crops and that kind of stuff. But there has to be a physical limit to the amount of food that the planet can grow, even with, even with science, right? Even with genetically modified crops and that kind of stuff. And so we may, like, you know, semi-dwarf wheat and golden rice and that kind of stuff were godsends and saved millions and millions of lives uh, because it was, you know, because it allowed for them to be fed. But we may have just delayed the inevitable. And eventually we are going to run out of food and, you know, save the invention of something like, you know, something that would seem to be technologically impossible, like food replicators from Star Trek, where you can just, you know, take any bit of energy or matter and convert it into whatever food you like. Unless something like that, you know, advances technologically, we will eventually run out of food and we're going to be stuck with this problem of overpopulation. And we may end up living in a world like the one depicted in Soylent Green, where, for example, there's an interesting a scene that this is not spoiling anything. You know, basically meat is very, very rare in the world of Soylent Green. I was just going to mention meat all right now, you know, cause given that it's currently they're doing lab growing meat and that could compensate for the need to use resource, land resources for cattle grazing. Right, right, absolutely right. Which is um, which is one of the the way that we produce meat now is one of the most inefficient methods mm. for right, Time like for calories for production, right? Like, well, yeah. So there's two things that that, that, are, that are that are like one is it is a huge producer of climate change, right? It produces tons and tons of carbon dioxide, not only literally in like literally the the equipment that you have to use to grow the crops. But then and like everything from the equipment that you have, like all the diesel that you have to burn to run the tractors and the combines and the trucks and all and all of that kind of stuff and the move the cattle around, et cetera, et cetera, and move the grain around. But then literally like whenever you're feeding the cattle, the cattle are emitting, you know, methane as a greenhouse gas literally in their farts. Right. And that yeah. that, that, that that kind of sounds silly, but that's actually a legitimate, yeah. you know, environmental problem. Right. And so it's a huge our, our meat production is a huge contributor uh, to climate change. But. On the flip side, it's also one of the most like if we if we're talking about overpopulation and feeding people, it is one of the most inefficient inefficient ways to produce food, because of the, I mean what you're doing is if think of it this way, 
the grain that you produce is much more calorie dense and it can go a lot further into feeding humans. What you're doing to get a, you know, a single, you know, to, to, to get a single cow that you slaughter and turn into a few slices of beef, right? You're literally feeding it, you know, tons and tons of grain over its lifetime, wasting tons and tons of water growing that grain that you eventually feed it, right? All to produce, you know, a few slabs of meat, where if you had instead had spent all of that water and used all of that grain to, you know, keep humans alive, you could have literally kept, you know, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people alive for their entire life. And instead, you've spent all of that time and money and resource on, you know, a single meal for a few people, right, to give them a nice steak dinner or something like that, right? Um, it's just an extremely inefficient method of food production, essentially. And once population, if overpopulation becomes a problem and food starts to become scarce, meat will become very scarce unless we can start developing it in labs and growing it in labs and that kind of stuff in an efficient way, which maybe we can, but that remains to be seen. I'm sorry for digressing you down that path. So <laughs> you were saying about the meat and soil and grain then? Oh, right. Yo, no, that, that just, just, I mean, all I was saying about that is that there's this kind of interesting scene in Soylent Green where Charlton Heston and his, his friend Saul uh, come across some meat that they literally haven't eaten meat for years. And it's a very kind of touching and interesting scene wherever they actually find some meat and eat it. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a, it's maybe iconic in a certain kind of way, but anyway. Do they, you know, so that moment where um, his name is Soylent Green, is it Charlie Heston's character's name? Uh, yeah, no, 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 no. The Soylent Green is not the character's name. Um, <laughs> it is, um, oh my gosh, it's, I'm blanking on it. Charlton Heston's character is, oh, let me, pause your, not don't pause your recording, but let me, oh, let me look Wikipedia. it up. So can, yeah, let me, um, I'll just look it up in my lecture here. And I'm going to send you these lectures, although do not read them nice. before, no, uh, do no. not, do not read them before you watch it. You have to watch it first. Also, Soylent um, is the corporation who's restricting, yes. causing the scarcity. Yes. Oh, well, they're okay. actually trying to deal with the scarcity. They didn't. They don't cause the scarcity. Uh, the overpopulation is what has caused the scarcity. Okay. Uh, they are. Um, they are trying to deal with it. So Frank is his name. Interestingly enough, that that okay. Frank Frank Thorne is the Charlton Heston's character. Okay, so so let me uh, let me give you a pause here, and then we'll return. Um, no, that's fine. People will be shouting that out, and they're glad that you came up with that, anyways. <laughs> if you're listening, it's Frank. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so Soylent is not the character's name. Frank is, is Frank Thorne is actually the character's name, and his, his, his buddy is named Saul. So um, they're and, having this moment together. I'm just wondering, did we eat the meat? Did they look at it longingly and then taste the meat? And is there that kind of connection? Yes. Of, it, okay. Yes, it is, it, is, it is like kind of this euphoric experience, right? They're it's, not willing to sell it on or anything, no? No, they definitely eat it. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely eat it, yeah. When you were describing Soylent Green at the beginning when they were talking about overpopulation, euthanasia, uh, scarce resources. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Mein Kampf. No, I have not read it. I mean, I know what it is, but I've not read it. In it, it's, it's terrible saying it now, but just, just in it, Adolf Hitler's hypothesis or his his approach was to follow something similar because of the German population was growing and then mm -hmm. there were... It's going to be scarce resources and scarce land. So they wanted to take over some of the land and resources that other countries had. 
And that was right. his way of dealing with it. It's almost ties in with the connection of the emperor, the dark side, mm-hmm. that you were talking about, and the lack right. of morals, and it doesn't win at, out at the end. And Nietzsche was talking about Ubermensch in terms of the likes of Elon Musk and Bill Gates, as you mentioned. Right. And not the Uberman, the Superman that Adolf Hitler had believed was the type of the race that they had, was the Aryan race or the, yeah, it was the Aryan race, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that, that that has those kind of similarities. And I, that's, that's what I was wondering, did, was Soylent Green built up based on that type of kind of creating that environment or that economy where there was overpopulation, euthanasia to solve the overpopulation crisis and the resources? Not that they went that far in terms of what happened in World War Two, but you did say it was based on a book that came out at around the same time about yeah. the... Yeah, so there's a, if I'm remembering correctly, um, there it is based originally, oh, let me look at this. Uh, let me look this up too. Let me make sure I get this right. And do not, do not Google Soylent Green. Do, do not do, do, I, I, was, I was scrolling down. I said, no, I, I can't. I'm not good. I'm, I, yeah. I'm after logging out of it. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't like Google Soylent Green. You just need to go watch it tonight is what you need to do. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's ba- okay. So yes, so Soylent Green is based on a 1966 science fiction novel called okay. "Make Make Room Make Room" by Harry Hansen, and it is, you know, again, it it is generated by this 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 fear of overpopulation. But what what motivates the making of the film? I guess I should say, like, why they thought the film was was worth making was Paul Ehrlich's, if I'm remembering the name correctly, Paul Ehrlich's book, "The Population Bomb," where essentially they were, you know, thinking that this was going to happen by the 80s, right? Like, like literally by the end of the 70s, early 80s, you would have this overpopulation. We were going to start running out of food, and so it is that worry. And so maybe this is worth saying, right? Like, this is a this is a really touchy subject because you're right. Hitler was worried about these kinds of things too, and he's euthanasia and 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 population control and that kind of stuff can definitely get out of hand really easy. And you can have, you know, you can, when you start talking about euthanasia, you can start talking about euthanizing one kind of person rather than another. Uh, When you start talking about population control and birth control, you can start talking about using it on one kind of population and not another, or one kind, you know, one race and, and not another. And that's a definite worry because, you know, today in the world, the place where, you know, Population growth is not a problem everywhere, right? In a lot of European nations, population growth is declining, but in a lot of African nations, it's increasing. And so if you start dealing with overpopulation in that way, uh, then you might start, you know, birth control uh, procedures on certain races in certain areas, and that can have a very Hitler-esque, you know, kind of feel to it, right? And so there are, are all kinds of really difficult ethical problems that you have to navigate when you're talking about this right but we're also talking about we you know again not right now we don't have an overpopulation problem such that we're like literally running out of food for the entire world right now but that is a legitimate possibility that is something that we could have to deal with in the next hundred years right that's like that's almost the only well, no, because you end up with, like I say, like the only upside to global warming is it may cull the population in a kind of way where we don't have to worry about this. But then we end up with the, the same problem, like we'll end up – global warming will likely end up shorting the food supply anyway, and so we'll end up having a overpopulation problem with possibly less people because we won't be able to grow as much food. And so we'll be right back to the same problem even though the actual number of people is 
smaller, we'll end up not being able to feed them because we're, the, the amount of food is smaller because of there'll be less arid land because of global warming. But like these are real problems that could happen in the near future, and there's all kinds of ethical questions that we have to consider given their given their possibility. Is Silent Green kind of like a dystopian future, or is it something that's happening really based on that particular decade, as if there was a parallel universe and this was existing right there and then and now? It is a dystopian future. It is actually set in the year 2022. Okay. So there's nothing yeah. like interstellar space exploration and populating Mars or anything like that? Correct. Correct. Right. Nothing so like it that. is... It is still considered science fiction. And this is something I talk briefly about in the course as well. What do you consider science fiction and what don't you, right? And there's hardcore science fiction like Interstellar. And then there's really what you might call kind of softcore science fiction like The Handmaid's Tale. Actually, the 23rd lecture of the course is on The Handmaid's Tale. And some people don't think The Handmaid's Tale is science fiction. I think it is because it is a dystopian future. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit of technology, very, very roughly list, a little bit of technology in there that's not necessarily – like future technology or whatever, but because it's so much like 1984 uh, in that it is set in a kind of dystopian future uh, in which things have gone wry and fascism and, and, you know, that kind of stuff and big brother kind of things uh, have taken hold. I would consider it science fiction. That is how Soylent Green is science fiction. There's, there's also a little bit of, you'll, you'll see it. There, there's also a little bit of kind of advanced technology uh, in 2022. You'll see that in the, in the film when you watch it. Yeah, but uh, that but that's the way it's science fiction. So it's not hardcore science fiction, but it's definitely sci-fi. Um, you didn't you you didn't you didn't ruin the ending by like you said you were going to stop looking or whatever. You didn't ruin anything by looking, did you? No, I didn't look, and I and I I'm not going to ask you any more questions because I want to explore a bit more on and I don't. And the only question I'm going to ask that's going to be related to it is, you said the year 2020. Is there any particular significant date? Because we know with Back to the Future we had them visiting uh, in 2015, I think it was in October. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it was, and there was a big. Um, do you remember they predicted the Chicago Cubs were to win the league, and they got yes. it right, but a year too early. <laughs> right, there's right. a couple of things like that. So um, I'm sure there'll be for diehard fans of Soylent Green. I'm sure there'll be some celebrations or acknowledgments of that particular time in in three years and four years' time. Yeah, and I, I'm looking to see if there's a particular date in 2022 that in which it is set and i'm not seeing anything so it may just be at a at a you know not a particular date in 2020 i mean i i know it's 2020 because the poster says it's the year 2022 i'm not, not 2020 it's the year 2022 and then it blah 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 and it says whatever and it shows charlton heston running away so I, I know it from that, but I, you, you, as you watch, you might look out, look for little clues that maybe there's a calendar somewhere, yeah. or there's some kind of reference to a particular day or season, so you might know, you know, when it's set or whatever. Uh, I don't know if it'll be as specific as I think it was like what is August twenty third, twenty fifteen, that they traveled to, you know, in the second Back to the Future movie. I don't know if it's going to be that specific, but I, and I don't remember any other predictions being made about like sporting events or or, or anything like that. But uh, yeah. I, you know, we, you, you may be, you may be tempted once you watch this movie, you may be tempted to do like, to come back and we'll, we'll do this again and we'll talk more about it yeah. um, because it's totally worth it. So I will send you those lectures and uh, again, don't read them until after you watch them. the movie. Yeah, that's and my then, homework. This is great and, homework. I'd be, I'd love to be a student of yours now and do, do the homework like that and read, watch movies. 
Well, that that is the that is the beautiful part about the great courses is you can't like so many people say, oh, I want to take that course. You can because it is available on the great courses. You can totally sit down uh, with me as your professor and you can watch the movies before you do the, you know, do the lectures and stuff like that. And it's you can do it all right there. That's awesome. Kyle, can I ask you another couple of questions then before we wrap it up? Sure. I'm sure you've read a lot of books and all that, but is there any one or two books that you would love to recommend to us as something that to read? And I honestly don't mind whether it's philosophy, economics, or anything that you've read regarding fantasy or dystopian futures or sci-fi. Uh, okay, so let me... Uh, or a movie, for that matter. Right, okay, so let me let me think about this for a second. Mm-hmm. Maybe recommend is not the great the best word to say. Okay. What's the one that you've most gifted, perhaps? Or what was the one book that was a page turner you just couldn't put down okay for me personally when i on your list it was the hunger games i just every Mm. at the end of every chapter you just had to turn it turn that page gotcha okay i'm going to recommend a philosophy book and a television show i think not recommend i won't use the word recommend but yeah that uh yeah okay so as for books i don't have anything uh in the science fiction realm necessarily to recommend directly in regards to philosophy if, if you want to learn how to do philosophy and to be a good philosopher and that which really amounts to being a good critical thinker uh th- a book that i use in multiple classes that i have read through multiple times that i that i uh encourage people to read uh, for this very purpose of teaching people critical thinking is ted schick and lewis vaughn's book how to think about weird things it is a textbook but it does not read like a textbook and it is a just a beautiful primer in the importance of learning to think critically and then how to think critically. And it is monumentally interesting because they literally talk about, I mean, it's how to think about weird things. There are countless number of weird things that people always want to think about, talk about everything from like UFOs and aliens and ghosts to conspiracy theories and that kind of stuff, but also everyday things. And like, creationism is, is you know has got a, and psychic powers and stuff is in there uh, but also just ordinary things uh and it teaches you how to think about those extraordinary weird things but also ordinary things in this extremely meticulous straightforward and very very helpful way i use this course in my i use this uh, this book in my critical thinking classes i use it in my logic classes uh and i I give a primer on it uh, essentially in every philosophy class that I teach because my students need to know this kind of thinking before and they don't always get it in other classes uh, before they take any of my classes. And so generally, if you want to know how to think and generally how to do philosophy, how to think about weird things by Schick and Vaughn, highly recommend it. As for philosophical sci-fi that's coming out that, that like that you could that you could watch. If you, there, I'll give you two. I'll give you two options. If you like dark and disturbing, Black Mirror. That's the one I mentioned before. It's a, it's a, it's a BBC sci-fi show that you can get on Netflix. Each episode is a self-contained episode that you can watch, you know, by itself. It is, it is beautiful. It is, it is, it will make you think. It will disturb you. It is, it is, it is awesome. It is really, really good. If, however, you want something a little bit more uplifting. And a little bit more bright and has a more of an optimistic outlook. Seth MacFarlane's new show called The Orville, which is on Fox, is fantastic. 
people kind of wrote it off. It got a really negative critical review, I think, because critics just watched the first episode and didn't like it. And like all shows, it kind of has to get its feet. The first episode is a little rough, but it's still good. But it is people people expected it to because it's Seth MacFarlane who does Family Guy and Teddy and, you know, all this. You know, they, they expected it to be Spaceballs, but just for Star Trek instead of Star Wars. Right. It is it is nothing of the kind. It is a it is more like Star Trek meets MASH, where MASH is a comedy, but it also is a real show about something that you know really happened with real characters that that treats, you know, and talks about real social issues with real characters that you care about. That is the Orville. The Orville is tacking tackling philosophical issues almost every episode in a beautiful, monumental way. It, and really important social issues, and the, it, the social commentary is spot on. It's smart, and it's a beautifully produced show uh, with fantastic visuals and that kind of stuff. And it's also funny as hell. Um, it's so fun to watch. Seth MacFarlane's funny as yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So it, it and just to give you a taste, like uh, in like the second or third episode, to give you a taste, like the the, the, the philosophy and the social commentary. There is a race of beings uh, in the show called the Mocklins, and they're an all-male race. Every everyone in the you know race is male, and there's a couple on the Orville on the ship, and uh, one of them is just like one of them is like the second officer, and the other one just lives there with him on the ship, and they have a baby, and it's it's hatched in an egg, and when it's hatched, it's a female, it's a female born to an all-male race. And they immediately ask the ship doctors to do a gender reassignment surgery on this infant. And she's, I'm not doing, the doctor says, I'm not doing that. That's, that's immoral. And they're like, what are you talking about? It's not immoral. You would correct the cleft palate, you know, if the baby was born with a defect. Our baby was born with a defect. It was born female. And she's like, being born female is not a defect. And they say in our society it is. And philosophy ensues, right? Like, I mean, it, it is... It is it is it is remarkable and things in the episode even make like make me wonder whether or not the Mocklins actually are a, an all male race or whether or not females are born all the time. But people just have gender reassignment surgery done on them and they hide it. And so no one talks about it. And so they're actually a bisexual race, but they think they're monosexual only because of the stigma of being female. It, it is a that's just one episode, right? Like, I mean, there's just it, it's episode after episode. It is, and even at that, you can really go down so many different avenues and associated with different types of societies around the world. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what makes the show so brilliant. It's so good. So, if you're looking for bright but good philosophical sci-fi, the Orville's where it's at. And dark, it's Black Mirror. Black Mirror. I'd love to know how do you get all of this done because. I haven't clicked into any of the videos, but 30, 24 videos, you have the mock-up, you have your your sets and your backgrounds all done. It must take a lot of time. Do you have your own personal studio? Do you go somewhere to work on this? Oh, you know, no, yes. There's so, there's all the writing to prepare for, the um, the animations, the the notes, well, the material. What advice, yeah. how do you get it done? What advice can you give us and for anyone who wants to, like myself, who wants to go down that road? Well, you got to be lucky. So the great courses is actually technically the the great courses is the product. It is produced by a company called the teaching company. The teaching company is a big company. That's all they do is produce great courses. And so they recruited me. They came to me and said, 
we would like you to do a course on metaphysics. And so I did that. And then they liked it and they got a good response. And so they've kept asking me to do new courses. So uh, the way this works is, so this is just my course on science fiction is just one of literally thousands of courses. Maybe I should say hundreds of courses. I'm not sure if they're over a thousand or not, but literally thousands of lectures. And they've been doing this for, they've been doing this for a few decades now. And so the process is they asked me to do a course they, they do research with their customers to see what their customers want. Whatever falls into my wheelhouse, they ask me to do. I brainstorm with people at great courses and that kind of stuff. We come up with what, you know, what I'll talk about. Then I write the lectures, but then I have content editors that go over the drafts and make recommendations. And they have fact checkers to make sure that I'm not getting anything wrong, which I do plenty of the time. And then we correct that and to make sure. And then I go once everything is drafted and ready to go. I go in and they have a studio and they have people. I mean, there was three cameras and, you know, professional cameramen. And they have the guy um, that worked on my um, that, that worked. I'm trying to remember what show he did, but I had a producer when I went in and he actually used to work on like, I don't know, it was something big. It was like something from HBO or something from NBC or something like that. Like he, I forget what show it was like, but he's worked on, you know, um, I think it was a reality show. I think he worked on like the bachelor or something like that. But like, you know, he's, these are these are cosmic professionals who really know what they're doing and they understand all of that stuff that I don't understand. And it, it's a huge production. And so I went in for basically two weeks uh, and we sit down and we you know, they, they make the set. They build the set. Uh, they do all that stuff. They were generous and let me bring in my sci fi memorabilia and that kind of stuff to set in the background. But uh, they do all that production. And so it's not just me. It is a whole team of people. Uh, that work very, very hard at the great courses uh, to pull these things off and make them look nice and make sure the academic content is top notch and that there's, you know, as, as few as we can make it, you know, no mistakes and that kind of stuff. And so I'm the star of the show, as it were, because I'm the one on the on camera. But just like a movie, there's a whole host of people uh, in the background, you know, kind of making this thing work. One question that I tend to ask my guests, and I kind of haven't asked it in a while, it kind of comes and goes lately. And you can choose the method of time traveling if you want to change it. But if you could step into the DeLorean and time travel, what era would you like to go back to? Who would you like to meet? And what type of what conversation would you think you'd have with him or her? Okay, so I can only go back. I can't go forward. (laughs) Well, yeah, that was um, someone asked that before. And I go for it. Go for it. Since this is dystopian future is what we were talking about. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I mean, I really would like to go forward and see how long we last, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and what technology is like in the future and that kind of stuff that, that, you know, but that doesn't really, that's not that very interesting of a question, right? Because, or a very interesting of an answer, I should say, uh, because who knows what's going to be there, right? That's just my own curiosity to see what, what, what it would be like. Uh, the much more interesting question is, is your question, who would you go back? Well, you could, you uh, could bring so you can go back in time with someone, bring them to the future and have conversations either. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, that's a really good question. Who would I go back and have a conversation with? Let me think about this for a minute. The answer I feel like I need to give, and it might be the answer that I genuinely would give, is Socrates. I would go back and talk to Socrates and have conversations with him and then maybe Plato and have Plato there. And maybe Plato would write a dialogue uh, about it. It would be very interesting to take Socrates back to the future and have him, you know, look around and experience the world for a while and sit down and have a conversation with him about that and what Socrates would say about Facebook and Twitter and technological advancements and science fiction 
And I think that that would be, you know, see if I could convince him that whether he was wrong or right to like one of the interesting things about Socrates was he thought that the development of writing was a horrific advancement because he thought real learning only happened when you memorized something. Mm-hmm. Um, and he thought that people being able to write things down was going to make them intellectually lazy because you didn't have to memorize anymore. You could just write it down and forget about it and look it up later. And uh, maybe convince him that he was wrong about that, perhaps. Although maybe he would argue that we'd be better off if we had stayed in the condition that he was in, in the, in the kind of Greek world that he lived in. But that's, I think that's, that's my answer for now. I think uh, I might think about it more and have a different answer later, but that's, that's probably the best one. Cool. Um, Kyle, cool. as always, like every guest, thank you very much for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was a little different uh, and that's what I like about it. And, I can't wait to watch your some of your recommended series and Soylent Green as well, and and I can't wait to see what that ending is like. Oh well, great! Th- thanks, Frank, and I, re- I really enjoyed I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm very glad that we did this. And uh, if again, if you want to talk more about Soylent Green after you've watched it, I'll be glad to do so. It was great fun. You are an economic rockstar, Kyle, and thanks very much for joining me. All right, thanks again. I'll talk to you soon again, and enjoy your week. All right, thanks a bunch. We'll uh, talk to you soon. I'll send you an email here in just a minute. Great, guys. Thanks very much. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.